All right, everybody, we are in Philippians. Um, and, and by the way, I should say there's a heads up. This is a fun one. Um, talking to some of the worship team this morning, because our children are such an important part of the life of our church, we're also going to be bringing some of their songs into our worship time as well. So don't be surprised if whenever you are hearing the opening song sometime, it's Deep and Wide or Jesus Loves Me. And because they're learning the songs of the church and we're learning the songs um, that they know as well. So it's just a way that we can equip the saints of all ages and prepare their hearts as well. Okay, so y'all, we're in Philippians 3.17, chapter 4, I'm sorry, 3.17 through chapter 4, verse 1. And if you take a look, we're coming to the end of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 17 through Philippians 4, 1. I'm in the ESV and Paul writes, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross, um, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So here we are, we're, we're right here in this particular passage of Philippians. And our heart as elders and leaders, whenever we're, we're preaching, is not to bring out any new information that just dazzles. We don't care about bringing out novelty. We care about taking the word and understanding the word so that it can equip. Because if we just preach in a way that the people still don't understand what the word says, then we really offer nothing. Jesus said, sanctify us in truth, your word is truth. Our role as we preach and as we lead in men's and women's is to make the word understandable and applicable, and therefore, therefore it has a sanctifying effect on us. So here's what we see in these passages. Paul invites them to join in the imitation. That's what he says, join in imitating me. Then he's going to tell them that there are enemies of the cross. Then he's going to remind us that we are citizens of the cross, and then he tells us we're going to get new bodies. And that's what we're excited about, right? We're going to get new bodies. So I want to kind of look into that. But you might be disappointed with my answer of what does that really mean. Spoiler alert, we don't know. Okay. But that's what we're going to kind of look at. We know a lot, but we don't know enough. All right. So let's just break this down. Philippians 3.17, I just I put as my title, Join in the Imitation. Look what he says. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So at the close of the letter, he has a very clear appeal. He says, imitate me. Do you know how arrogant I would sound if I told you to imitate me? You're smiling, so I know that that would sound arrogant. Okay? But if I got up here and I said, cross life, imitate me, that would sound so arrogant and conceited. And do you know what the call of the Christian should be? Imitate me. 
is what we should be saying to the world. I'm trying to live a life of godliness and holiness who sees that Christ is seated upon the throne, that he has overcome death and sin and redeemed me, and I'm living a life that is passionately pursuing him in such a way that you should imitate me. Not perfect. I'm not perfect. But that's what we should be. And I'm going to show you that in Scripture. But it does sound a little conceited for Paul to say, join in imitating me, but you also have to understand the context. And here it is. Paul is writing to the early church. They did not have the New Testament that we are reading right now. They didn't have all of this put out before them. They had the apostles and they had godly leaders and they had saints. They had men who were leading out for Christ because of Christ and to make much of his name. But they were the book. The the apostles were the New Testament. They were living it out. They weren't just writing letters. They were living this out. They were proclaiming Christ. So whenever Paul says to imitate me, he's saying that you need to look at a life so radicalized by Christ that this is what it begins to look like. He's not being conceited. He's just saying, you have no other standard except for me. So that's kind of that idea. In fact, if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 11.1, he puts it this way. He's not saying, imitate me, Paul, because I'm Paul. He's saying in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's his heart. That should be the heart of the Christian. Paul pull it all together saying, imitate me because I am striving my hardest to imitate Christ. But you have to know that that you are quite possibly cross-life believers. Like You might be the only New Testament that anybody in this world will ever read. We don't like that whenever we hear it in the church. We're like, oh, no, 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 it's got to be the word. Right, we've got to put the word in front of them. But they're not going to listen to the word until they know who you are. And they're not going to know the authenticity of the word until they see the conviction in your life. But you, as you go from this place and as you post things on Facebook and as you're speaking to people this week and as you're trying to live, you may be the only genuine example of Christ that this world may ever know. They may never open this book, but they will know you. Therefore, Paul says, join in imitating me as I am imitating Christ. That begins to reshape everything that I want in my life. It really does. Because while we say we love Christ, the old man, the flesh is still there within us. And he wants his attention and he wants his time in the light and he wants his own way. But the new spirit that's within us keeps telling us that we can overcome, that we have overcome because we are in Christ. And so we constantly have this battle within us. But if you know and if we keep in mind that we are called to imitate Christ so that others may imitate us, I believe that that begins to shape how we speak and how we act and how we think in private and in public. So that's what Paul means. J.B. Phillips paraphrases the verse in this way. I like it when people make it simple. (laughs) He says, let my example be the standard by which you tell who are the genuine Christians among those about you. That's how J.B. Phillips paraphrased that. Paul says, let my standard, in other words, be the example by which others can tell you are a genuine Christian. That's where Paul seated himself. That's the obligation that Paul had 
in his life. That should be our heart as well. That's pretty stinking heavy. I mean, that is. Husbands, let your example be an imitator of Christ so that as your wife and your children are looking at you, they see Christ. And you can say, join in imitating me as I imitate Christ. Wives, let your affection so be associated in Christ that as you imitate Christ, your husband and your children see Christ in you. That as you go to work, that that is exactly how you live. That you can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The problem in my life is that my affections are not always associated on Christ and I'm imitating him to the degree that I'd want somebody to imitate me. Does that make sense? I know it does because some of you are going... Like, as I keep pushing into it, it's just all over your faces. You have to understand that, that my heart, whenever I'm putting the sermon together, is, is never, oh, how can I get them? How can I step on their toes? But it's what does Scripture say, and what do we need to know? And Scripture says, join in imitating me as I imitate Christ. But here, here should be our heart. And I think it's our heart, and Scripture answers us exactly where we are. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Therefore, we keep praying for one another. We keep praying for Christ to equip us. But this should be our heart. Imitate us. Imitate our example and our love of Christ. Look how the cross of Christ has so radically changed everything about me so that I no longer live for myself but for God and for others. Look at how I consider myself nothing for the sake of knowing Christ. Look at how I consider him who humbled himself for my sake and is now seated at God's right hand. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That should be the heart of the Christian. And the only way we're going to get that heart is by humbling ourselves and seeking him. Paul was not being conceited. It was really and truly a genuine desire to see others not consumed by the lies and the lust of the world and just captivated by Christ. That was his desire. And if he is the only way by which men and women will know that there is a God who created all things and holds all things together and is redeeming all things, if he is the only linchpin of all of that, then he will take that obligation upon himself. And it's the obligation of all of us. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's his mode of discipleship. So really, this is a call. It's an invitation to know Christ and to treasure him above everything else. But y'all, we, we do need to live under the conviction that wherever it is we go, in public or in private, whatever it is that we say or do or think or act upon, there is an onlooking world who's looking for really, truly genuine, authentic faith. They are desperate to know what it means to stand before a holy God. They might not think they are, but Ecclesiastes says that he has planted eternity in our, eternity in our hearts. There is a longing within us to worship something. And our world is so consumed in worshiping itself and other things that it doesn't know how to worship God. That is our obligation. Y'all turn, in case you think we're stretching this a little too far, Go to 2 Corinthians. So hold your place in Philippians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. The Corinthians also written by Paul, different audience. But you, 
You hear this same thought of join in imitating me? You hear it here in 2 Corinthians, but now he's going to tell you why. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Paul says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Like if I'm an underliner, then I'm going to be underlining that in my Bible. Just so you know, if you don't have an underline or highlighted, you want that passage. All of this from God, all of it's from him, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And now watch this. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19 says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And y'all watch this. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You and I are ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we live differently. We speak not the language of the world. We speak the language of the kingdom. We live not according to, the, to the, the, uh, the standards of the world, but the standards of the kingdom. We are just aliens and sojourners here. This is not our place anymore. You and I should feel out of place in this world. We should be shocked by the customs of this world. We should not be comfortable in this world. It's not our home. We were in, in Disney and Chas has a shirt that says, uh, what's it say? Uh, you wore it all week long. It feels good to be home. It feels good to be home. And it's a picture uh, of, the, of Cinderella's castle. And she's like, I mean, whenever I'm at Magic Kingdom, like, it does feel like home. I was like, really? Because it feels like Disney to me. And my home's way back there. But you know what? Whenever we did get back home, whenever we, we landed and then we, we, we drove back home and you walk in to your home, it just feels so good. But here's what I thought was interesting. Whenever we were in Florida, our kids were even like, this is Florida water. It doesn't taste right. <laughs> and the air was even different. And so we land in Arkansas, and we're, we're walking through, through the, we, we get off the plane, and we're walking through that, that, I don't know what you call it, that gate. And all of a sudden, you can smell Arkansas again. And Jackson even turned around, he goes, that's the right air. Like, it's Arkansas air, and the water's going to taste good again. Y'all, it's not the right air here in this world for us anymore. It's not the right water for us anymore. Like, it doesn't satisfy us. It's because you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, God making his appeal through you. You are ambassadors, which means that this is not your home place. You're here as a representative. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You and I have a high and holy and humbling obligation. If you wake up in the morning and think you can be an ambassador without prayer, then I'm going to encourage you to begin with prayer. You have a high and holy, humble calling. But, but Paul also wasn't being arrogant. He just, didn't just say, imitate me, Paul. He also said, go back to Philippians 3.17 and keep your eyes on all of those who are doing this as well. He says... Look at us. We are trying to set out a godly example. This was really important to them. That they were ambassadors for Christ. Because again, there was no New Testament to which you and I can look. 
We get so caught up in plans maybe that we forget to live for him. Jesus in Sermon on the Mount reminds us, he says, you don't have the light of your love for Christ and then hide it under a bushel, but you let everybody see it. And there's a reason for that. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount and you look at that, that passage where he's talking about being the light and letting it shine, there's one result. There's one motivation for it, he says, so that they may glorify God. You and I live in such a way that others will glorify God. So he's telling, he invites them in. Why? Because there are enemies of the cross. Take a look at this. The enemies of the cross, verse, verses 18 through 19. Paul says, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So after inviting them in to imitate he and the other apostles and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the other forgotten saints throughout time, after inviting them in, he tells them why. And he says, you must imitate me. Why? Because the world is dark and desperately depraved. There are enemies of the cross. Parents, you know what you need to be reminding your kids of as they go to school? That there are enemies of the cross in this world. My own kids will say, Dad, did you hear that lady over there? She was saying this and that. Or did you hear that, that over there? Or did you see that go across the TV screen? And all I know to say sometimes is, I'm really sorry. That's just the way our world is, and I'm sorry. Like, I do my best, and we try to protect them as best we can. But the truth is, they need to know that the world has different values because it's not of the world that we've been called to. The world is desperately depraved. They're enemies of the cross. But before we get into their, their characteristics, look at this. this. This is so incredibly important to me. And maybe just walking life alongside of some of y'all who I love so dearly, look at how Paul responds to their sin. He is brokenhearted and he weeps over it. My natural tendency is to become callous to their sin. Well, they do that and that's, well, they're not Christians or, or why do they act that way or why are they doing that? We get so callous to the sin of the world that I forget to be brokenhearted for it. That's what Paul said. He said that he is writing to them now to tell them that he is writing with this with tears in his eyes that they're enemies of the cross. The danger for you and me is that we become so callous to the perversity of this world that anger rules where grief should. Like we get so angry, and I think that there should be a righteous anger. I'm, don't get me wrong, there should be a righteous anger, but, but then we, we forget to grieve. Matthew 9.36 is one of my life verses. It's one of them whenever I, I get to it, it resonates with me, and, but then also whenever I see crowds, I just, this verse comes back to me. It's probably why God called me to pastor. But in Matthew 9.36, Jesus is in a religious society. There are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There are those who know the law, who, who know of God. They know all these things. It's a religious society. And it says that when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he compassion 
He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word for compassion there, the original word meant a gut-wrenching affection. Like literally whenever Jesus saw the crowds, his gut wrenched within him and it was powerful and he had that emotion for them because they were harassed and get this, helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion and Paul wept for the lost because they were enemies of the cross. Yeah, I do pray that we have a righteous anger that moves us to act, but that also we just have such a humble compassion because you and I were both enemies of the cross. We were there. Now, Paul's going to tell us the enemies of the cross. they got four characteristics. I'm going to move as quickly as I can through them. But he says, here are the enemies of the cross. Number one, their end is destruction. They will end in destruction. I think that that is so good for us to remember because we live in a world, too, where we look around and it seems like the wicked are prospering. Like industries, vile industries are, are expanding and exploding. It seems like there is sin everywhere and everything just seems to go on and it's fine with the Lord who is so holy. But scripture tells us that, that the rain will until the end fall on the just and the unjust, that the sun will, will shine on the rebels and on the redeemed. It does tell us that the wicked will seem, even seem to prosper here, but you have to know that their end will be in destruction. And if their end is in destruction and we know what destruction means, which is hell, then you and I should be weeping for their lostness. You and I will encounter people who proclaim to be Christians and yet they don't live the Christian life. They know the verses, they have the shirts, they sit in church every day and yet by their fruit we know that they do not seem to be imitating Christ and that can make us angry and it can make us callous or it can break our hearts in compassion and we can push into them even further. The elders are charged in scripture to guard the flock, shepherd the flock, equip the flock but at the same time I have Matthew chapter 13 in the back of my mind. So y'all go to Matthew chapter 13. As an elder and a pastor, alongside Andy and others that God is bringing up and equipping to lead, Matthew 13 stops me just about every time. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 24 through 30, it's the the parable of the weeds, but listen to this very closely. He, Jesus, Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, listen to this, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, 
I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the, the illustration is this. Jesus gives him a parable and he explains it to his disciples later in Matthew. But he tells this parable of a man who has a garden, which will never be me, just so you know, who has a garden and he goes and he plants good wheat. It's good soil, it's good grain, it's good wheat, and he plants it. And then at night, an enemy must have come in because as it begins to grow, then the weeds begin to come up. And his servants, desiring to do something good, they go to him and they say, but didn't you plant good grain? It's good wheat. He says, yes. And they said, okay, well then shouldn't we go, I'm good grain, or good wheat, yeah, I'm sorry. So then shouldn't we go pluck out all of the weeds so that it all remains good. And he says, no, because in pulling out the weeds, you might ruin the harvest as well. This makes total sense to me. I am accused of not um, pruning our plants in our yard, but of murdering them. It just seems right that if you have one that seems partially unhealthy, you just cut the whole thing down and let it try again. Because it bothers my OCD to prune and trim out this part over here, or this dead part, because then it's not balanced. You know what's balanced? A trunk. So I, I like to cut it all the way down. I've been accused of crepe murder. Um, and so I try very, very hard right now to be mindful that these are the plants and these are the weeds. But, but here's the truth. Sometimes a plant looks like a weed to me, and sometimes a weed looks like a plant. I just don't know enough. And I want to be mindful that in, in my life and the kingdom as I'm being brought to him that I don't know enough. And he puts the weeds and he puts the weeds or I'm sorry, and he allows the weeds. But what I want you to know is that in the end, he will sort it all out. He will make sure that our end is glory and their end is destruction. Go ahead and flip back to Philippians, but I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 21. As you flip back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 and 19 and so on. Here's what Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8 says. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Praise God, y'all. Praise God. We will make it. He will be ours. We will be his. But then he goes on in verse 8 and says, But as for the cowardly, for the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. There will be an eternal punishment and destruction for them. Part of my heart says Amen. And the other part says, oh my. And it's with that same conviction, I think, that Paul writes to the Philippians and says, their end is destruction, and I write this with tears. But he goes on and he says, their end is their destruction because their God is their belly. There, there's, a, there's a Greek word for it, which I don't think really matters. What it really comes down to is this, that their appetite becomes the measure of their happiness. That's what the, the belly means. It was... It was kind of the seat of all of their affection and satisfaction. So if I were to say, oh, his, their belly is their appetite, in our culture we'd have this idea that they must be gluttonous, that they must eat way too much. He means that they are indulgent. 
whatever sin it is that they are in, they're indulgent in it. And so he's saying their God is their belly. Uh, another understanding is that it was a, great, a greedy lifestyle. It was all about them, in other words. Everything that was satisfy and secure who they were, it would bring them happiness. That's what they were. They were destined for destruction because their God was their belly. The enemies of the cross, I wrote it this way, they live lives that care mostly about pleasing themselves. Their heart is set on honoring themselves as God. And instead of seeking self-denial, they seek self-satisfaction. And you and I just need to be mindful of that. He goes on and he says, they glory in their shame. This is a phrase that, that as John and I were, were texting this week, this is a phrase that, that uh, kept coming to mind all throughout the week, but I, I even put it in a text to him that they glory in their shame. I think that this is a phrase that, that most characterizes our culture now. They glory in their shame. Such shameful things being done and yet so celebrated. I would begin to make a list of them, but our, we know that our list would go on. And at a certain point, we would find that the list was inconclusive. But you and I live in a world that delights in the shameful. What's corrupt, they glory in. And anything counter to holiness, they not only practice, but they encourage others to practice them as well. They glory in their shame. Instead of glorying in Christ, that which is shameful, they glory in. It defines who they are. They're excited about it. They celebrate it. It fills in newscasts and newspaper stands and magazines and Facebook feeds. You and I don't have to look far to see that sin is being celebrated in our world. It's just the pattern of the world. And they celebrate it because they glory in their shame. Why? Because their God is their belly. Why? Because they are destined for destruction. I want to go back to this. You and I have a tendency, if we're not careful, and I'm going to speak now more for me. I, I did that to kind of pull back to me. I tend to become more callous and to dismiss them, to be disgusted at it and at them. And I like to, and I, I do think that there should be a righteous anger, but Paul is telling us all of this with tears in his eyes. They glory in their shame, and it causes him to weep. I want that sort of heart to be broken over their depravity that they are glorying in. And then he tells us that their minds are set on earthly things. And this is why they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame because this world is their world. The God of this world is the one giving them all that they desire to fulfill their indulgences. I don't mean the God big G of this world, not Yahweh God, but Satan, the God of this world, God's enemy is giving them all that they could want. Their eyes are on the flesh, their feet are in the mud, their tongue tastes all the delicacies of this world. And they say, you only live one, so you got you to carpe diem and seize this day. You got to take in all the delight you can because this world is about to end. And I'm saying, praise Lord that this day is about to end and that death is one day going to be there for us because we will be ushered in to where we truly belong. But this idea that we need to live now and indulge fully because this world and this life is going to end... It's just a banner for hedonism and indulgence. We've been called to something much better. But let me just summarize all that in this way. The lost act like the lost 
y'all? Because they're lost. Like, just let that sink in. The lost act like the lost, and they delight in their lostness because they're lost. They do not treasure Christ as you and I should and are. They don't delight in all the glories of God. They don't know the deep-seated love of God for them. They don't get it. They're lost and they act lost. I'm sorry, they act lost because they are lost. That's why we go. That's why we go live under conviction, knowing that we're walking into a lost, dark, depraved world and they desperately need Christ. Otherwise, their end is destruction. We need to show them that their belly is not the God of them, but that there is a God who satisfies all delight. But they don't know. And you might say, well, we're in America. We're a Christian nation. They know. No, they don't. Look at where we live. Look at America. Sin is all around. And if I went to Afghanistan, I'd be able to say, look, sin is all around. And if I found an isolated island out in the middle of the ocean and I went there and I lived with them, I would be able to say sin is all around. It has infected all of creation. But there is one God who so loved his creation that he took on flesh and dwelt amongst us and took upon our sin so that we might become the righteousness. And so therefore you and I must be living lives of imitation so that we can show them that there is a God in this universe or all creation. I said that wrong. Now, Paul's going to shift us back, and he says, but, in verse 20, so here we are, citizens of the cross, but our citizenship is in heaven. Man. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So in contrast to the enemies of the cross, we are citizens of the cross. And so he's going to kind of push into this. And here's what I want you to, to realize, that, that you and I are citizens of heaven. We don't fit here. We are not citizens of this world. I know I've said it over and over and over again, but you know what Paul keeps reminding all the early believers? That we are to live differently, that we don't belong here. We're in a lost world. But keep in mind what God himself, what Jesus told us in the Great Commission. We're to go. And we're to make disciples. We are to go to be imitators of Christ. That's what Christian means. It means little Christ. We are to go out as little Christ into this world that is not like us so that they can read the New Testament effect in us and see that Christ has so radically changed us that this is how you live. The world is tired of cheap Christianity. Paul's just reminding them not only to imitate him, but that they're enemies of the cross but you and I are citizens of the cross. And that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming back from heaven. He created us. He came into his creation. And y'all, he will come again. The Savior will come. The Lord will come. I like to say it this way. You hear it a lot. We are his. He is ours. And he is bringing us home. Like it will happen. Where they glory in their shame and their end is destruction, we glory in Christ and our end is glory. Like it's going to happen, but we must endure until then. Paul was also, 
He used the word savior there. This is just a fun little Jeopardy thing that they will never ask you on Jeopardy. So here's just a nice little tidbit for you. But where he says savior, the term there is actually very rare. But if you look at it in context, he's writing to a Roman kingdom, to Roman citizens, where Caesar's inscription was the savior of the world. Caesar would declare himself to be the savior of the world. And so Paul is is so blatantly and gently reminding the Philippians that there is one savior of this world. And it's not Caesar there. It is Christ who is coming back into this world. Only Christ. There is no president, no vice president, no party, no platform, no senator, no, no anything in this world that, was, that is going to save us. The only thing that saves us ultimately is Jesus Christ. We pray for our leaders. We seek to appoint godly leaders. But at the same time, we have to know that our Savior comes from heaven. Now, the part we're all waiting for, we get new bodies. All right, that's going to be awesome. One day, I will be as tall as Brad Duplantis. I will be tan and muscular in my redeemed body. I will run and not grow weary. I will not grow exhausted. I will be able to sing on key when I want to and play the guitar. Like, I'm going to be able to do all these things in my redeemed body. Chas is excited for the day, okay? Look at Philippians 3.21, where it says, Jesus, who will transform... Will you hand me that water, buddy? Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, I just want to address this very quickly. I've heard so many great and wonderful and comforting theories about what this means. Like I've heard, I don't know if you've heard this, but that this lowly body, which by the way, in the original language, this humbled body, like that was what it, like this is a humble body that we have. I know, great example, right? Okay, so here's the humble body. We will have glorious bodies some days. But that was the original language, the humbled body that we have. I've heard that, that just as Jesus was really in the flesh, he was also able to appear in a locked room with the disciples, so we will be able to do also. I've heard that we will be able to travel with the speed of thought. I've heard that we will never grow sick, that we will never grow tired, that we will be fully redeemed, and that my body will be like that in my youth whenever it was like at its most like perfect uh, appealing point, probably. No amens. Okay, so like this will, by the way, we watched our wedding video the other day, um, and the kids laughed at us. Uh, no, I'm sorry, they laughed at me because I looked so different back then. But like I have heard all of these, and I know that you could add to that list. They're great theories. What is it going to be like to have a glorified body? Y'all, we don't. We don't know. We just know it's going to be so much better than... I mean, for me to tell you that we can travel with the speed of thought is for me to try and wrap my mind around an infinite mystery that I have no idea about. Like, I don't know. It's going to be good, and I'm excited about it. And I think that if I were to tell you what I thought it was going to be like, then I would be sorely embarrassed by my ignorance whenever we get there. But I do want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We do know something. Like this is my, my final big passage to take us to, and then we're going to conclude. But you want to know what the glorious body is going to be like. I do too. 
But we're writing books about things we don't know. What I do know is that Christ has redeemed me and he is faithful. He's coming again and he will not relent because he promised. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 through 54, what does it mean whenever it says that he's going to redeem our lowly body? Here we go. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So the resurrection body. You foolish person, Paul writes. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. So when this body dies, it's not going to be what it will become. But a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies. See that? There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. So in other words, we've kind of taken this idea of what would it look like for a redeemed body, like glorified here, and we've taken our perspective of this side of everything. At the same time, there is a heavenly glory. Verse 41, it says, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in star for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, this body right here, is perishable. It it dies, it perishes. Then it goes on and says, But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Y'all know that there's a lot and you're going to have questions and there's mysteries in it. That's fine. The first man was from the earth. That's this body right here, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So Adam was from the earth. Christ is from heaven. It's paralleling that this is this body's from the earth. We're going to be redeemed by Christ. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, our bodies, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So there's a lot there. And it's all still really vague to us. We don't get it. It's going to be better. Then he goes on in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the, immort I'm sorry, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved, he writes in verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I'm just telling you, if I had to live with this for all of eternity, I mean, 38 years, I've seen my body change a whole lot in 38 years. It just seems like in the last five years it's kind of accelerated, but there's more gray hair. I get up slower. I groan more. I hurt more easily. If I had to live with this, and this is what 38 feels like, then 500 is not impressive or desirable to me. But we will have a different body. It will be a glorified body. Now, just to keep the mystery fully alive in you, whenever John is called up in the Spirit in Revelation, he sees the different nationalities represented. And they seem to be in the flesh. It's a redeemed flesh. It's a redeemed body. It's imperishable. It's glorified every tongue and nation and tribe there before the throne. We don't know, but I promise you this. It's going to be wonderful and glorious. It will be entirely worth it. And this groaning body will be laid to rest and we will rise smiling and rejoicing in him for all of eternity. So Paul concludes this way. In light of all of that, in light of everything, join in imitating me as I imitate Christ. Why? Because there are enemies of the cross who do not desire the Lord, but we are citizens of this. Uh, I'm sorry, we are citizens of the cross, and so therefore we live differently, and he is going to come back and he's going to redeem our bodies. Here's how he concludes all of that. He says, therefore, in light of all of that, Philippians 4.1, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's your application. Stand firm. If all these things are to be true, he says, stand firm. They're enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Cross life, stand firm. You are citizens of heaven. Your end is glory. Stand firm. And then I want to remind you of this in your, in your firm standing. Paul didn't write Philippians to an individual. He wrote it to a church. He wrote it collectively to the saints. There's a plurality here. So whenever I'm saying stand firm, stand firm individually, stand firm collectively. But in light of all that we know from this passage, Paul concludes, stand firm. That's what you need to do this week and going forward. Let's pray. Lord God, our delight our Lord and Savior who will come from heaven again. The humility that was wrought and then brought to us from heaven and is ours by your Spirit. Lord God, may we live according to that. But Lord, help me to weep. Sorry, Lord. Break my heart for the lost. For the enemies of the cross, give me that deep-seated compassion that you had for the lost. And Lord, give me the right check of the anger because it corrupts your glory. But Lord, in the end, you sort things out. I'm to go. And so Lord, may we go and stand firm on who you are. Thank you for these reminders today that we are citizens of heaven and that you will redeem us fully and completely one day. We are yours you are ours. 
And you are bringing us home. Praise God. Amen. Amen.